0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. As we continue our series, Finding God in the Disappointments and Losses of Life, we'll examine a topic that is relevant for all of us, true love. So let's turn in our Bibles to Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, as we join Dr. Neufeld.
1: When my children were young, one of our favorite family movies was The Prince's Bride. My children, I fear, memorized most of the movie and would say the lines as the movie went on. But all of us agreed that our favorite scene was the wedding scene when the fair Princess Buttercup was to be forcefully married off to the evil Prince Humperdinck, even though she really wants to marry the love of her life, the noble stable boy Wesley. But now against her will, she and the evil prince are in a grand cathedral surrounded by all the nobles in the kingdom, and there stands the priest to marry them, dressed in a grand religious robe, and then in that grand formal occasion, he opens his mouth and begins to speak, and it's only then we realize he has a speech impediment. And so he begins by saying, love, true love, marriage is what brings us together today. And my kids loved that line. They would laugh, and so would their dad. And some of the best stories are about love. If you pick up a romance novel, chances are that the way the plot line develops and the way the love story in Ruth develops will be very different. Unlike The Prince's Bride, where the stable boy Wesley fights to get his love back against all odds, in Ruth, Boaz, the knight in shining armor, seems prepared to give Ruth away to someone else. And unlike modern romance, when the dashing young man finally on one knee proposes, this middle-aged man never actually gets around to proposing to the beautiful young woman, and finally, in desperation, Ruth does the proposing— And the only reason Ruth does it is because her mother-in-law has put her up to it. And Ruth did just what the older woman counseled her to do. And instead of there being a long romance in which he finally sweeps her off her feet, romance is entirely absent from this story. I know some of you women will say, great, then Boaz is just like my husband and just like my marriage. Nothing romantic ever happens there either. And they made a book out of this and they put it in the Bible. But that's just the thing. I'm not speaking against romance or of rekindling a sense of magic in your marriage. I'm all for that, only that true love is made of very different stuff than that. Unless one learns what genuine love is made of, all the candles and the right music and all the expensive presents eventually cannot express true love. The candles and the music can be a celebration of love, but they are not the thing itself. So welcome to a love story that looks and reads so different than the ones we know. And just in case you are not married or engaged or even hoping for it, let me say there's enough in this account to teach each one of us what it means to be a lover in all scenarios. Please remember that a drama has led us to chapter three. Both Naomi and Ruth, her daughter-in-law, are widows. And Naomi has lost all her ancestral property, and the two women are left penniless. In spite of Naomi's bitterness with God, God has provided. God has been gracious. A very noble man named Boaz has been God's conduit, God's instrument of rescue and of kindness. As Ruth has gone out to glean in the fields of Boaz, Boaz has provided for the two women enough grain for them to live for a year. But Naomi had other plans. She realized that Boaz was a redeemer or a kinsman redeemer, and in ancient Israel, a kinsman redeemer would come and restore matters, would set matters right. In this case, he would marry Ruth, have children with her, and whose children would be considered as carrying on the family line of Malon, who was Ruth's dead husband. And with the marriage, he would also buy back all the land that Elimelech, Ruth's father-in-law, and Naomi's husband had lost. Naomi saw Boaz as the man who could put matters right. But in spite of his kindness and generosity towards Ruth, Boaz never lets a romance blossom. And so as the barley harvest passes, and as the wheat harvest passes, for seven weeks he makes no move, no overtures of love towards Ruth. And now that the harvest is over and Ruth will no longer work for Boaz, it appears that all hope of romance and love have died. Boaz has cared for Ruth, but never once expressed anything beyond his concern for her well-being. But Naomi will not accept this. Let's read Ruth chapter 3 verse 1. Then Naomi her mother-in-law said to her, "My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you?" Notice several things. First of all, it's now evident that Naomi has come to love Ruth. She calls her my daughter. You'll remember that back in chapter 1, she wanted her to leave her, and when she got back to Bethlehem, she didn't even acknowledge her. But over these weeks, as one sack of grain has grown to two, to enough to feed them for a year, she's come to realize that Ruth's pledge never to leave Naomi was made in earnest. And Ruth's love for a bitter mother-in-law is now being reciprocated. The two women deeply love each other. Notice also that Naomi wants Ruth to find rest, meaning she wants her to find security. She wants a husband to care for her. She mentions that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. He could become her husband. And with that, instead of approaching him directly, she devises a plot. I'm reading verses two to five. Is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, and do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. Naomi knows that Boaz is out in the field winnowing. Now for us urban types who have no idea what he's doing, let me explain it. Harvesting grain was done in three stages. First of all, workers would cut down the standing grain. Then the grain would be taken to a threshing floor, in which the grain would be hammered off the stalks. The threshing floors were round on a flat, hard surface, and sometimes big square blocks of wood would be rolled over it, banging out the grain. Once you separated the grain from the stalks, then came the third phase, often done when the long harvest season was over. The grain is covered with chaff, and one would wait until evening when a wind would kick up, and one would throw the grain into the air, and the wind carrying the lighter chaff away, allowing the heavier grain to fall to the ground. Not until this process was done did they have grain ready for sale. So Boaz is winnowing, and then because the process goes on sometime into the evening, or because he wants to guard the grain, he sleeps on the end of the grain pile on the grain because it is comfortable. And then he spends the night out there alone, and Naomi knows that the man has a custom of doing this. So Naomi tells Ruth to dress for the kill. Wash, bathe, put on the best perfume because, ladies, if you don't know it, it's all in the presentation. Men are hugely visual and respond to the senses. And then she says, go to where he's lying and cover his feet. Now, all of us know what feet are, but let me point something out. The normal Hebrew word for feet is not used here. And in fact, the word for feet in this passage is used in only one other place in the Bible, and that's in Daniel chapter 10, where it speaks not of feet, but of the entire legs. Let me also say that in all likelihood, he would not have been wearing that much underneath, but she is not instructing Ruth to be immodest, only to uncover enough of his legs that he gets cold in the night and wakes up. Then says Naomi, after you've done that, Lie down close to where he is and do whatever he says. Let me tell you why this is a very dumb idea. I can think of all sorts of reasons, but here are three of them. First, going out in the field at dusk left Ruth vulnerable, because all of this happens during a time of the judges when lawlessness and personal immorality are at all-time high, and she could have been abducted, and more seriously, she could have been both raped and murdered. This idea left her in a vulnerable position. Second, Boaz could have taken offense and kicked her out and then subsequently destroyed her reputation. In an instant, everything that Ruth had done to gain a reputation as a decent woman who was seeking the God of Israel would have been undone. Those of you who have listened to the series from the beginning know that the Moabites had a reputation for being sexually permissive, and there had been a well-known incident in which Moabite women were used to seduce Israelite men and lead them to idolatry. Horrible images could have been conjured up here. Finally, people would have said, we can see that all Moabite women are no good. Everything good that happened to Naomi and Ruth up till now would then lie in ruins. This story of hope would have ended in disaster. Now, when we come back, I want to show you one more reason why this is a very bad idea. But at this juncture, notice that we really don't have to run ahead of God. The account of Jacob in the book of Genesis is the account of a man whom God has chosen to bless and then spends the rest of his life deceiving and lying and manipulating and trying to get that which God was determined to give him in the first place as an act of grace. Or think of Abraham, who heard God promise to make him a great nation and then seeing that the promise seems unlikely, sets out to have children with his concubine, all to achieve what God would have given him by grace and not by works. When we come back, we'll see how this gets played out.
0: This introduction has given us a deeper insight into the unfolding of Ruth and Boaz's relationship on a number of levels. We can see how God ultimately brought them together. Yet it was through the manipulative plan that Naomi had, which started it all. But despite this, we also see that their coming together represents quite a remarkable example of the kind love that honors and pleases God. After the break, we'll continue to explore this in more depth. Every month, thousands of people across Canada send their gifts to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your gifts sustain our Bible teaching program on this station, on our website, podcast, and mobile app. Your gifts make the audio programming and print resources available for free, breaking down barriers for anyone to access trustworthy Bible teaching. Your gifts provide our weekly young adult podcast and website in doubt to thousands of young people. Your gifts are critical, so thank you. So please continue to support Back to the Bible Canada with your prayers and your financial support. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca today. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld.
1: I wonder if the lesson here is rather obvious. Too many of us are so insecure about the goodness of God that we fret and we fuss and we manipulate and we even do harm because we cannot rest secure in the fact that God loves us and is gracious. Now, we've noticed that Naomi's plan that Ruth should lie down beside Boaz in the middle of the night was a bad idea. It exposed Ruth to two dangers. The first was the physical danger of being attacked. The second was the danger that her reputation could have been destroyed. But there are two more dangers. The third danger is the most obvious of them. This could have led to sexual immorality. In the Bible, hear me, no exceptions, none, not at all. All sex outside of marriage, including one night stands, living together, sex with your fiance, or the statement that we're in love, so it must be okay, or homosexual relationships, or adultery, or anything sexual outside of marriage, all are condemned by God. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Notice the writer of Hebrews presents us with two categories. God, he says, will judge people who commit adultery, that is, engage in sexual relationships while they are married to another. God condemns this. He says, let the marriage bed be kept pure. Pure means for one thing only. The only sexual relationship God approves happens in marriage. Sex is for marriage alone. But then the writer of Hebrews adds a second category. God, he says, will judge the sexually immoral. The Greek word is parnous or pornea. We get our English word pornography from that word, but in the Greek, the word does not refer to pornography per se. The word refers to all sexual relationships outside of marriage. Older translations call this fornication, engaging in sexual relationships while not married. So why? Because the marriage bed, meaning the bed on which sexual intimacy is conducted, is a marriage bed. It is reserved for those who have committed themselves to one another in a lifetime covenant of fidelity. You see, sex is like fire. Fire is great. Warms your home in the winter, cooks your food, and is absolutely magnificent on a summer camp out. But if the fire is lit on the living room floor, it burns the house down. Unless the fire is set in the proper context, it kills and destroys a lifetime of dreams and wealth. The same fire is both beauty and destruction. Marriage is the context, which keeps the fire in a place of blessing. It is the fireplace that keeps it lovely, but prevents the house from burning down. Indeed, Jesus himself spoke of this frequently, forbidding us even to contemplate porneia in the heart. In Matthew 15, he called it evil. It is very important for us to understand this. The sexual casualness, which is a part even in contemporary Christian culture, belies any sense that we're the children of God. 1 Corinthians 6.20 tells us to honor God with our bodies. And it's not as if this is a New Testament teaching alone. The Old Testament law was specific on this matter. Leviticus 18 is an entire chapter of the Bible forbidding unlawful sexual expression. Indeed, verse 24 of that chapter says that sexual immorality was the way in which the nations God drove out of Canaan became unclean and incurred the displeasure of God. God still feels the same way about our sexuality today. And so Naomi, this complex woman, who once believed that God had turned against her and then realized that God had loved her, who once told Ruth to return home to her gods and then rejoiced in what the God of Israel had done in her daughter, was again up to her complicated ways. Go to him in the night and cover his legs and wait for him to awaken. So I can't help but read the first five verses of Ruth and think the application goes something like this. Don't try this at home. Or don't let this be your model. Why? Because manipulated relationships often turn out badly. How often is it that in dating, or even after in marriage, or in some other arena of life, honesty gets replaced by manipulation? But some of you will say, yes, but the the story turned out so well. Well, yes, it did. But God often takes our stupidity and ransoms it. But it is unwise to think that it is an argument to act in this way. But Ruth submits to her mother-in-law, and they have a plan. So let's keep reading. Verses 6 to 9 reads as follows. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. It's evening. The winnowing is done, and Boaz has eaten and drunk, and he's in good spirits, and he lies down, and he falls asleep. Ruth is very quiet and uncovers his legs, but does not lie down beside him. She lies at his feet, taking not the position of an immoral woman, but of a submissive woman. And the middle of the night, as his legs are getting cold, he wakes up and sees a woman at his feet, and he asks, who are you? And I was thinking this week of all the rude awakenings in the Bible. Adam woke up and found that he had surgery and that he was married. That's a rude awakening. Jacob woke up and found out that he was married to his fiancé's unattractive sister. That was a rude awakening. Samson woke up and found his girl had ratted him out to the police, and he was going to jail. And in the New Testament, well, Joseph woke up and found that he was going to marry a pregnant teenager. And I'm not sure how Boaz woke up. He woke up to find a beautiful woman at his feet who smelled real nice. And his first thought might not have been that this was a rude awakening. Or did he? You remember that the major hurdle that Ruth had to overcome was her ethnicity. The common assumption around Moabite women was that they were sexually immoral. In fact, in Genesis 19, we are told that the birth of the Moabite people occurred because Lot's daughter got him drunk, lay with him, and bore a son named Moab. And here was Boaz, not drunk, but has had some wine. And here's a Moabite woman lying at his feet. And what should he think? She wants to have a child with him and claim her inheritance from him. That too, folks, is a rude awakening. What I find fascinating is Ruth's bold and, shall we say, almost brash words to him, and Boaz's kind response. First of all, notice in verse 9 that she identifies herself as his servant. Back when we were in chapter 2, we noticed that Ruth called herself Boaz's servant, but back then, we noticed that there were two Hebrew words for servant. In Ruth 2, she called herself Boaz's Shivka which is the lowest of all slaves who have no hope of advancement. But now she uses the word ama, which is a reference to a servant who can advance to become a wife. I wonder if Boaz noticed that. Well, I'm pretty sure that he did. But I noticed that Ruth did not profess her love for him. She expressed rather her commitment to carrying on this relationship within the confines of the covenant of God. She doesn't want a man. She wants a man who will act in accordance with the revealed will of God in the Scripture. And so begins one of the most beautiful love stories in the Bible. Love to love. And yet this story confesses that true love only happens when two people agree that the relationship that they will share will be in conformance with God's direction for their lives. Next week, as we finish the story of Ruth, We're gonna see how love and the kindness of God are a part of God's story to bring in the Messiah. But this time we've wanted to notice as well that when love fully develops, it is to develop within the confines which God gives us. What an important lesson for us to remember because all of us know how much we want and need love, but we need God's direction more than anything in this
0: area of our lives. John, this has been a challenging message. Uh, you know, we're all confronted at times in life with uh, decisions that we need to make, and sometimes even those that we trust the most can give us bad advice, and we go out and do something, and we regret it afterwards. Uh, so what does that say about where we should be seeking advice from? There's
1: so many thoughts come to mind. As you mention this, Ben, uh, one of the thoughts are that we need to seek advice from the Word of God. We need to discern the advice that we receive from others on the basis of a knowledge of the Scripture. And even people that we trust or have advised us well in the past might not advise us well in the present sense. And so I think we need to know the Bible well enough and to have the kind of confidence in the word well enough so that we might be able to say of a piece of advice, this sounds good, it sounds biblical, or this doesn't. I think there's another piece that is also a part of that formula. And that is, uh, sometimes we have followed advice, and sometimes it's been bad advice, and we think because of that, things are in such disarray that they can't possibly be redeemed. And I think we need to also see from the story that we've just read that God sometimes uses some very difficult
0: circumstances to work out His will. So we need to be confident that God is still there. So, John, you have a tough decision to make. Where do you go? What are some of the criteria you use?
1: Well, Ben, I do consult with others. I mean, the Bible says in a multiplicity of counselors, there is wisdom. And there are people in my life that I want to give permission to speak into it. But in the end of the day, I do know that the decision is mine to make. And so I want to make it listening to others, but also listening
0: to the Word and letting the Word be supreme. Join us again next week as we continue our series in the book of Ruth right here on Back to the Bible Canada. In the encounter between Ruth and Boaz, we've seen a picture of God working through the faulty plan of Naomi to bring about this beautiful marriage between two godly individuals. I hope that you've been blessed by today's message as we're reminded of what true love really means in contrast to the vastly different idea we get from the secular culture around us. Let us pray and seek to reclaim God's design for relationships in all respects within the church and the world today. Join us next week as Dr. Neufeld begins the third and final week of this great series on Ruth. Back to the Bible Canada is pleased to announce a new partnership with Promise Keepers Canada in presenting Dr. John Newfeld as one of Promise Keepers' conference keynote speakers in the months ahead. Dr. Newfeld will be participating in the Promise Keepers Quest Conferences in Toronto, Ottawa, Winnipeg and Edmonton and the Promise Keepers Legacy Equipping Conference on Saturday, October 22nd in Abbotsford, British Columbia. To register and to check out all the upcoming events for Promise Keepers, go to promisekeepers.ca or to discover upcoming events with Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca. And don't forget to continue to support Back to the Bible Canada during the summer months. It means so much to sustain this Bible teaching ministry. To donate, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.